Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Today I'm welcoming Reverend Tracy Barnow. Pastor Tracy is an ordained minister with the United Church of Christ. She has served as a revitalization pastor in multiple churches and has studied and tested methods for effective church growth for the past 20 years. She has served as church growth consultant and led workshops on her evidence-based growth strategies for years. She served as the Minister for Church Vitality in the Hawaii Conference of the United Church of Christ. Pastor Tracy holds an MDiv from Pacific School of Religion and an MA from the Graduate Theological Union with a focus on Old Testament hermeneutics. She has BAs in Russian and French with a minor in Spanish from Portland State University. Pastor Tracy currently resides in Los Angeles with her two teenage daughters, a terrific fiancé, his mother, two gigantic dogs, and one very old cat. She breaks down effective church growth methods at How to Grow My Church. That's howtogrowmychurch.com. So let's welcome Tracy to the show. All right, welcome to the show, Pastor Tracy. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? I think that's pretty much it. I think that'll serve well as my bio, as well as my obituary, and there's nothing that needs to be added or, or subtracted. Well, thanks so much for listening. Uh, thanks so much for being here. For our listeners, I was going to say, we're recording this the Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, so the kids are home from school, so you'll you'll hear them in the background. Uh, so please enjoy their cacophonies of childhood energy, right? They make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Yeah. Well, share if you would kind of about your journey of faith, how you came to Christ and what that looks like today. Uh, you know, I always had Christ in my life. I was raised Episcopalian. Uh, that's my mother's church and her mother's church. I think that there's their long family of Episcopalians. Um, and I was baptized in the Episcopal Church, and I was confirmed in the Episcopal Church. I remember being confirmed at uh, Grace Cathedral in San Francisco when I was a teenager. And, um, you know, I know nowadays it's, well, I guess around the 50s or 60s, it kind of became in vogue to talk about having a big born-again experience. And I honor that when people have had them. But um I was raised by a woman who saw God in everything, in all places, and her faith was present with her and still is every moment of every day. And so I think I came more from a a mystic tradition, which is um, having a lot of experiences of God and the Spirit moving in my life um, from a very young age. So there was never a need for a gigantic born-again experience because I was with God and um, raised in the church since I was a child. Uh, I was, I was steeped. I was actually steeped in the Episcopal church. Um, and what does that look like today? Well, I'm no longer with the Episcopal church. I'm actually with uh, the United church of Christ. And mm-hmm. um, it's interesting because I think one thing I had to realize as a minister is reconciling that with my uh, mystical tradition, which is, stop looking for a ministry to do and mm. just sit quietly and God will send you what you need. Um, so I've had, you know, things pop up all the time where suddenly I'll get a phone call or someone walking down the street. Well, this still happens to me, you know, I'll just be like, Oh, hello. And they'll say hello. And next thing you know, they're telling me their life story and we're praying together, you know? Um, and so, so these kinds of things happen all the time. You know, when I, like I mentioned, uh, a little earlier before you started recording, you know, there was a young man who was severely depressed and suicidal. Um, and for whatever reason of all the adults in his life, he asked me to be the one to walk with him to the emergency room when he decided to get treatment. Um, mm. And he's doing great now. He's got a job and he's reconciled relationships and he's, he, he's doing wonderfully. And so um, that's sort of how God manifests in my life. Still, that's where my faith is, is, um, 
just being open to when an opportunity presents itself um, and being willing to go deeper into conversation with someone um, instead of seeking seeking God, um, more being the best person that I can be and the most humble person, which is hard. I wouldn't say I've got it all down pat yet. Um, yeah. So that when God needs a vessel and God needs hands and feet on the ground, I can be open and receptive to that and ready. Um, rather than saying, oh, no, I don't have the time or that doesn't make sense for me or that doesn't fit into my long-term goals. Yeah, I'm here. What can I do? For you and God, you know, pray, pray, pray. God, give me the words. Tell me what to do next. Um, and doing more listening and following. Um, and so I'm, I'm really grateful for my mother, actually, because instead of waiting for a gigantic, big flashing sign in the sky, which is really helpful sometimes, you know, being able to discern those little nudges and those little pushes, um, those little still quiet voices um, has become a really valuable skill to have and it served me well. Cool. Cool. Um, that's, I'm intrigued by your comment about sitting quietly and God will send you, you know, not, not running out. That's a, something I'm working on right now. So I'm appreciating that comment of learning to trust, uh, trust God and not be impatient for ministry opportunities. Oh, I still get very, very impatient. Um, that definitely, that definitely happens where I, I get frustrated, which is why I think I put my prayer in my book and I, and I teach it to people all the time. Um, when I feel like I'm trying to force the situation, that's when I know something's wrong and I have to catch mm -hmm. myself and say, God, mm -hmm. this is your big, stupid situation. You fix yeah. it. <laughs> and if there's yeah. something you want me to do, um, make it really, really clear so I don't miss it. And then step back. And and that's as important to remember who's in charge as it is for me to then have permission to step back and say, I don't have to try to fix this all by myself right this second. I'm going to sit and I'm going to focus on something else. Um, it, it increases humility. Frustrating, perhaps uh, resentful humility, but it, it does increase that and it helps. Yeah. Kids are being super noisy right now, so I apologize for the ice machine, but it is what it is. <laughs> Don't even worry about it. Talk about a spiritual practice that's been meaningful for you or you might recommend to others. Oh, um, well, I have, I guess you'd say I have a prayer regimen. Um, mm -hmm. It's just sort of a mishmash of prayers that I know um that i've that i recite uh, especially when i'm feeling stressed or overwhelmed or don't know what to do with the situation um and uh, i've discovered that many of them actually um, can be put to music and so they can be helpful anywhere you know i don't have to sit and light a candle and be in church to pray them i can pray them while i'm walking the dogs i can pray them while i'm driving to a stressful meeting um but you know, they include the Lord's Prayer and the doxology, which is being grateful, um, and the Serenity Prayer, which is uh, a 12-step program prayer, but it also came out of the United Church of Christ, and it just reminds us to set aside the things we're trying to control and let God be in charge again. But I think one thing that's really helped me, and this goes straight back to the mysticism and the discernment, is um, St. Ignatius' Prayer of Examine which is where you go back over the 20, past 24 hours of your life in segments and ask yourself pretty simple questions. Where were you? What were you doing? Who were you with? And where was God? And, and then you look to see if there were patterns. Was God trying to get your attention and were you giving it to God? Or was there some obstacle that maybe you need to think about or address? And thank God for being there in every single moment of your life whether you realize it at the time or not. Um, and then, you know, going forward, you can, you, it helps you to remind you, oh, yeah, when I think that God is not there or when I'm not listening, you know, there are patterns that I can, I can then learn from. Um, and that, I've, I've taught that to many congregations, and I found it to be exceedingly helpful. I like St. Ignatius, I think, has a lot um, to say about connecting with God and um, he speaks to my experience, the way I, I learned to be sensitive to the spirit. So that's something that I, I really, I really like to do. 
especially in a group, because then you can all talk about what you're noticing, Yeah, you know, and yeah, you have the edification that. and the fellowship. Because discernment, that's the number one rule of, di- of discernment is you don't want to do it all by yourself. You can get into your own little echo chamber and really mm-hmm. misunderstand. It's better if you can be with other prayerful people um, who will help check your ego for you and you know, get you back on the right track if, you're, if your discernment has, has gone sour. Well, those are some good thoughts. I especially appreciate that idea about controlling what you can control. I know we were talking uh, before we started recording about family systems theory, and that's a big theme in that. It's just, you know, what can I can control? What can I not control? And just those centering prayers can be a way, great way of kind of grounding ourselves too. So um, very helpful. Let's talk about your book. So uh, Tracy's the, Pastor Tracy is the author of Grow Your Church. Uh, overcoming biggest obstacles to church growth and getting 85% first time visitor return. So share with us kind of maybe before we talk about the book, share about just how you got into this work and why. Um, well, I would say I've long been a bit of an organizer. I am. Um, yeah, I, I've always been sort of an organizer. I tend to see, oh, there's an issue. Let me see if I can get some people to, to work on that together. Um, you know, in high school, I was doing that uh, with the uh, ecology club, trying to get a recycling program going at my high school and stuff. In college, I was doing it with a ballroom dance club in a in a in a in a university that had a real binge drinking problem and trying to find other things for kids to do and uh, for students to do. And so, you know, I had been doing sort of growth work unofficially in my volunteer life for many years here and there, just starting things and growing things. And then um, a big sort of galvanizing event happened when I was with the United Church of Christ. I had just started attending this little church called Hillsdale Community Church in Portland, Oregon. It's still there. It's still a great church. Um, And I noticed a couple of things. First of all, they were really welcoming when I got there and they were like sort of the classic church. They were sort of the canary in the mind of what we're seeing with churches now, because everybody there was over 70. I was the only person under 70. I was in my twenties. And now that I know more about, you know, how to welcome newcomers and what's effective and not theoretically, they did everything wrong. You know, they, they kind of glommed onto me the first day. They asked me to join everything. Um, but they remembered my name and they were (laughs) really friendly. And, and I tell about that in the story about how I I met Molly and everything like that. But one thing that they did was somebody asked me if I would serve as the chair of the outreach committee. They felt they'd been stagnating for some time. They see this college student coming in young, about to get married, right? This is like, I didn't even realize I was sort of the target market for churches. If they identified, you know, young married couple about yeah. to have kids, yeah. you know, let's put them in charge of everything and get them involved. And, and so, so I remember this, this person sent me a card um, and saying, I've been thinking about it. I've been praying about it. I thought you might be a really great um, outreach committee chair. We need someone. Would you be willing to serve? Would you please pray about it for a few days? And I'll call you. Um, and I'll call you to see what you, um, what you, what you think, what you think, what your final answer will be. And I remember getting this card in the mail and looking at it and thinking, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. What is this person thinking? Why would she want (laughs) me to be an outreach chair, to run a group, to try and get it, you know, rejuvenated? Uh, she saw gifts that I did not see. And I remember this stupid, this card, I call it the stupid card, this card, it was aggravating to me because I wanted to avoid it and I couldn't avoid it. She said she was going to call me, not what I please call her. You know, we weren't really emailing each other. So I couldn't just send a polite email to avoid the phone call. And I remember it stared at me. Like it sat on my coffee table for so long, staring at me and I would stare at it and it would glower at me and I would glower at it. And then I would say, Oh man, she's going to call. How am I going to tell her? No. And then one day this, this wild thing happened. Um, Do you have time for just a little story for a second? Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Okay. So, so here's the thing. I don't think I put this in the book, but I I was sitting on my couch one day 
and um, just kind of got the urge to go and, and look out my kitchen window. And my kitchen, we were up at sort of halfway up a hill. I lived right next door to the church. Like there was like a little alley and then the church was next door. And then um, from the apartment, there, the, the hill sloped down. And at the bottom of the hill, there was like this huge complex um, of, of, of housing. And I'd never really been down there. It kind of looked like a sort of a picturesque little French village or something with all these little rooftops and and, uh, but I'd never been down there. Well, that day, for some reason, I do not know why I was drawn to look out the window, you know, but I, I looked and you could see um, Mount Hood from the window, you know, it was a beautiful picture. And something was going on down there, some commotion that I had never noticed before. So I thought that's odd. You know, it kind of looked like there was a garage sale going on. And I was young, I was in college, we were just recently married. And I just remember thinking, I don't need to go to garage sale, we don't have any money, and we certainly don't need more junk. But the urge to go, right, that still small voice was not being still or small. It was kind of kind of kicking me in the pants, get get out there. Mm. And I thought, that's mm. odd. I remember telling my husband at the time, what, you know, he goes, where are you going? Oh, there's a garage sale down the hill I want to go. And he said, what? We don't need any more stuff. And I was like, I, I know I'm going anyway. And as I was about to tip out the door, I grabbed my purse and <laughs> a, a voice said, make sure you take two index cards and a pen with you. And I know that sounds very strange to hear. It sounded very strange to hear at the time. And I thought, where am I going to get two index cards and a pen? And I turned around and the ironing board was out. And on the ironing board was two index cards and a pen. And I don't remember how they got there. Um, that's all I can tell you. And so I, I grabbed them, I stuffed them in my back pocket, and I tipped out the door. And as I, as I was going down the hill... You know, I kind of had to go down a long, a long road and find the entrance to this complex. And as I'm coming in, I'm seeing these signs, right? Sale today, sale today. And they're all on like construction paper. These were not professionally produced signs. They were construction paper. They looked like they'd been written in magic marker and they were kids handwriting, you know, sale today, yeah. sale today. So I get all the way up to the, to the, I find the, you know, they was in like the tennis court or whatever. They were having this little sale. And I'm suddenly swamped by children. And they're all like trying to ply their wares. It was so funny. You know, do you want to buy this t-shirt? Do you want to buy this whatever? And I'm looking and I'm the only the only person there. All the kids clearly lived there. There's one other adult who was sort of in charge. And then there's me. And so all the kids are trying to get me to buy stuff. And I'm looking at these items and something's not right. Right? These don't look like garage items. These are like garbage. Like t-shirts that have holes in them and stains on them. You know, um, cutlery mm -hmm. that is bent, toys that are clearly broken and missing pieces, 25 cents, 50 cents, a nickel. And I'm, I'm looking, I'm going, what is, what is going on here, right? And I look at the other a woman who was there, and she says, this is a fundraiser, right? Now, they were trying to get school supplies for all the kids at this complex, now, this was, oh. nowadays, it's really common. Nowadays, you know, it's just understood. You get an email five weeks before school saying, here's your list of supplies that you have to get for your kid by the first day and the supplies you have to donate to the classroom, right? Just We yeah. just expect yeah. you to come up with 150 bucks worth of stuff. That wasn't always the case. To all the people here that are under the age of, like, 30, that wasn't always the case. It used to be you'd show up with your backpack and a binder and some paper and a pencil, and then the school would provide the rest. And what I didn't know until that moment was that this was not just a housing complex. This was the second largest affordable housing complex in the state. So wow. everybody living there was like Section 8 families living, working families living under the poverty level. And the woman that was there organizing this, sort of organizing it, was the family liaison. She was uh, bilingual because a lot of the families spoke Spanish only. And she was there and she said, you know, all of a sudden this year, this was like in the early 90s, right? Or late 90s, all of a sudden this year, all the families got this, this letter saying, you know, you have to come up with all these, all these supplies. And it, it terrified people because they didn't have the money to suddenly come up with it. So the kids decided that they were going to hold a garage sale to raise the money to try and get all the school supplies paid for, for over 100 kids at this complex. And so they had gone through their belongings and their parents' belongings, and they had made their donations to the garage sale. And they were selling T-shirts with holes in them for 25 cents a pop to try and outfit all these kids. And I remember looking at this woman, and she looked at me, and I just, I looked at all the stuff. All these kids at this point are like, do you want to buy a soda for 25 cents? They also had sodas for sale. 
And I just kind of looked at her and mouthed right over the kids. I didn't want the kids to be spooked, but I just said, you, you're not going to make it. You're yeah. not going to make it. And she goes, yeah, I know. She goes, I know, I know. But the kids wanted to try. So I wanted to try. And I remember looking at her and having this moment of just deep dread. And then it changed. And I glanced up the hill at the church and I looked at her and I said, well, funny you should say that because it just so happens that I'm the new chair of the outreach committee for that church up the hill right there. <laughs> and we have money and we oh, want to wow. help you. <laughs> wow. And I remember her eyes like popped. She was like, oh my God, oh my God, right? Now this was before cell phones. We didn't have cell phones back then. And I remember her, she's sitting at this table and she's patting me. She's like, oh my God. She goes, this is amazing. This is great. Yeah, let me, let me, let me get your number. Let me call. I'll call you on Monday. We'll find a time and we'll, and she's patting around and she looks at me and I could see the, her face falls, right? When she realized, because this was before cell phones. If I walked away and we're trying to remember each other's numbers, we're never going to connect again. And I was about like her, her ship had just come in and it was about to sail right out again. And she looked at me and she, and, and she panic and she goes, I don't, I don't have a pen. And I thought wow. for a second and I pulled out two and three cards and a pen. I wrote her number on one card, my number on the other card, switched them, right? So we each took one home and three weeks later, we outfitted all of the hundred kids in that complex, plus left her with a cabinet full of extra supplies in case anybody ran out or broke their pencil or whatever. We had filled everything on everybody's list and uh, had enough left over. We were able to partner with another church on the other side of town who was trying to outfit all the kids in their neighborhood as well. And all of a sudden we started building partnerships and um, it spread and, and, and it became an, an annual thing and everybody was so excited. And I ended up serving as outreach chair for multiple years. Um, and it was at that point that I was, I think, really, truly invested in church work. And I know in the, in the book, I talk about how I noticed that the church at one, one day, um, you know, we were, it was, I couldn't figure out why it was still so small when we were getting newcomers. And I, and I figured out the guest book connection and took that upon myself um, to start learning how to, to get people to come back. But the concept of being thrilled with church work and with ministry and with um, using it as a, as a way to affect social improvement as a group in partnership with people, not benevolent, the little benevolent white church on the hill, you know, yeah, cascading yeah. its graciousness down with all of its money. We worked in partnership with that group, with that housing complex, with that family liaison coordinator and with the kids um, to make it, to make it happen. And it was at that point that I started to realize the amount of power that can be used for good in churches that I had not realized before when I was just, you know, attending Sunday school or being confirmed or whatever, it all kind of snapped into place. Um, and uh, I was ordained in that church, you know, I think 14 or 15 years later. Um, and I'm still in contact with all their ministers and, and their former ministers and, and still go back to visit. So that's kind of how I got my start. I would like to say I, I had this, you know, I figured it all out myself, but really God literally sort of drop kicked me out the door one day. And, um, and there I was, I found myself in the right place at the right time, just having to listen and say, what do I do next? Even though it didn't make sense. Yeah. And it all worked out. That's a great story. Just as I'm listening, I'm hearing a few different things I want to highlight. A is like, A, it was like we talked about at the top. It was not you forcing something. It was recognizing something that was happening. And I think that's a great point for churches that side too, is just kind of being aware of what's happening in the community and seeing how you can be involved with what we might say God is already at work within, right? Well, and that also, I, I come back again and again, and I, I tell churches this and they don't believe me. And then, and then we work together and they're like, oh, that makes more sense now. But um, it's very counterintuitive. Yeah, but yeah. the reality is, churches already have everything that they need to be able to do the ministry they're being called to do. You have all the people, you have all the resources, you have all the ideas, you have all the wherewithal. Um, and if there's something that you don't have, God will send it to you when you need it. The idea that, you know, oftentimes churches, ministries, people can self-sabotage before they even get started because they say, oh, well, you know. I don't have the skills. I don't have the experience. We don't have any yeah. good. We're all too yep. old. We're too tired. We don't have the right kind of um, 
resources. We don't have enough money. We're too tired. Nobody's got any good ideas anymore. I guess we'll just have to sit here and pout until we die. And then when I go in and start looking around and start asking the right questions, all of a sudden people are like, oh, we did not realize that we had everything that we needed and everything can can get moving and, get, and we can get rejuvenated and we can find our relevance again and get our um, enthusiasm and our spirit going. And it doesn't cost us anything. We didn't have to go and seek it out from outside. We just had to pay attention to all the signs that God's been giving us for years that we weren't listening to. Yeah, this is really good stuff here. We're not even into the, the questions I was going to ask you. And you've got a great story here. Just I'm thinking of uh, in the in the nonprofit sector of the, the term asset-based community development, which is a lot of what I'm hearing here from you is the emphasizing that you don't, it doesn't, it's not like you need hundreds and thousands of dollars and hundreds of people and crazy resources. Like you have what you need to make an impact in your community. And I think that's such an important point for churches to learn and be reminded of. I think it's so easy to get caught in that deficit. If you're making an impact on your community, you will grow. That's the thing. Um, yeah. And, yep. and that's one thing churches don't don't realize. They tend to try to put the cart before the horse. They say, well, if we could just get enough people um, coming in the doors, then we could start some really exciting ministries rather than one person can start an exciting ministry and that will bring people in the doors. Um, and that's always been, you know, that's there's an old saying, money follows ministry. Um, and and it's true, but people follow ministry as well. If If there's a church that's doing something very interesting in the community, that is beneficial and easy for new people to jump in and help with, um, that church will become vibrant very, very quickly, whether they're ready for it or not. Um, if they try to wait yeah. until they have enough people coming in before they can launch something, they're never going to get there. They'll just get smaller yeah. and smaller. I think I see this in my own circles, most often around the idea of children's ministry. You know, many mainline churches really struggle with children's ministry. And, it, you know, children's ministry, good children's ministry is hard takes a lot of resources. Uh, the competition from non-denoms and evangelical churches is out of this world. Um, but it's often like that chicken or the egg thing. Like, what do you need first? Do you need the kids or do you need the ministry? And it's like, oh, we need children before we can do ministry, kids ministry. But if I'm hearing you right, really, you have to do do children's ministry, implement something, and if you do it well, they'll come. Well, well, I'm, I'm worried we're going to be going on off on way too many tangents here, but I've written a couple of articles on my website uh, on a discipleship model of ministry. And I'll, and I'll preface this by saying, um, long before I was ordained, while I was still in seminary, I served as a children's minister, as youth minister, as family um, minister, for people with kids um, in multiple churches. And I will tell you that in every single um, place where I've served, the children's ministry has grown. New kids have come swarming in. And we did not do it big box model. We did not have you mm -hmm. know, tons mm -hmm. and tons of resources that we were throwing at these kids. We were not you know, hopping them up on candy and doing the party model. We did the discipleship model, which is where we said, you are old enough. You were old enough to walk and talk you are old enough to actively participate in the ministries of the churches. We want to show you all of the ministries. You know, we did it systematically, carefully over, you know, months. We tried to limit it to maybe one a month we would do. But we would say, this is the church's homeless shelter. How would you like to help? This is the church's food pantry. How would you like to help? This is the church's delivering Thanksgiving dinners to our homebound seniors at Thanksgiving. How would you like to help? Um, you know, and, and then we'd start to say, what do you see in the community that we're not seeing that you want to work on? And that's when they really take off. You know, we, um, one group of kids, they decided they wanted to put together hygiene kits for refugees. They were really worried about the Syrian refugee crisis. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, They've got a goal. They're preaching. They're getting up in front of the congregation. They galvanized. I mean, they're bringing in their friends. <laughs> one one group of kids I actually did. Um, yeah, they're bringing in their friends. They're bringing their friends. And actually, one, one of them in one church, they decided we went on a walking meditation around the Tenderloin of San Francisco because that's where the church happened to be located. 
And so we, we did a walking meditation and then I asked them to say what they had noticed. You know, we're just talking and, and um, very much like Lexio Divina kind of hybrid that I've put together. But they, they what, what came out of that was they decided that they were not aware of how much suffering there was outside their church doors and they wanted to help. And so they decided to, um, they wanted to help feed people. And so they partnered with another church and asked if they could take over one night to help um, bring bring the food, cook the food, and serve the food, which meant they had to do fundraising. And at this point, I was just trying to say, yes, yes, yes. They were bringing me the ideas, and I said, yeah, I think that's great. Mm-hmm. How can I help? Mm-hmm. Rather than, well, okay, kids, now we have to get organized. you got to wait for the adults to sort this out. What can I do for you? And I remember getting emails from kids saying, we've checked the budget. We still have X number of dollars left. We want to provide dessert, too. Here's our choices for dessert. You know, can we go shopping? <laughs> they, they were organizing everything, and at one point – after it was all over, and they did, they brought their friends, when it was all over, the very next day, and this is where I think people underestimate kids. If you give them something interesting to do, where they can make a difference in someone else's life, they will do the evangelism for you. They will do the inviting for you. I've heard about big box churches, mega churches, where they're trying to convince their people, their youth, to invite friends, and whoever invites the most friends gets like an iPad or something, it shouldn't be that hard. You know, we went and we, so I let the kids plan the meal, find the money for the meal, cook the meal. I mean, they were working so hard and I was just saying, yes, yes, yes. And afterwards, the very next day, I got a call from a, one of the youth in tears. And she said, I'm here with my friend who's crying with me because I told her, I was so excited to tell her everything we did serving this dinner. She's upset. She didn't know about it. She would have come and helped When are we going to do it again? Because she won't stop crying until I tell her when the next one is so that she can come. And my other friends want to come too. And that, that is ministry. That's not advertising. Mm -hmm. That's evangelism where we're saying we are on a path. We are following Jesus. We're doing it with our hands and feet. Would you like to join us in discipleship? Now, those are biblical terms that we may not be using in the moment, but that is exactly yep. what happens because then they come and they say, oh, we didn't realize churches could do this. We have our own ideas. Can I bring more people? And all of a sudden it blows up. And that has happened again and again and again in every single church I've served in um, where the kids are upset that they they weren't allowed to come or they didn't know about it rather than trying to cajole them or bribe them into bringing friends that don't want to come. So. I want to highlight that phrase there. What I'm interpret or summarizing is the yes and how can I help? Um, we're way off track here, but I'm just going to keep going with it because this is a, I love this conversation where it's going. Uh, in your book, check out her book, folks. But in her book, you joke about this this scenario where you were you're meeting with a, some kind of committee, and you know you joke about not wanting to sit through six months worth of committee meetings to make something happen. And I think if we're talking about mainline church context, this is what so often happens in mainline church context, where it's like, well, that's a great idea. Let's talk about it for a committee meeting. Let's then have another committee meeting to to think about it. Let's have another committee meeting to vote on it, and, and then to appoint a subcommittee to go research it and come back to us with a proposal. Right? <laughs> we need more committees. But then we're like three or four months down the road, best case scenario, often the opportunity has completely passed us by, if not the opportunity, then the enthusiasm. Oh, yeah. At this point, it's soured. It's, it's, a, it's a chore that nobody even right. wants to talk about anymore because they're so mad about it. So talk about how to reframe a church from that, oh, we need to have committees and subcommittees to go study and examine this to being a church where it's yes. How can I help? Because that's a huge switch. How do you even begin to change that mindset in churches? You start by not trying to change the mindset. Um, I would say, I think of the serenity prayer, right? God, grant me the serenity Uh to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And that's the critical part, is the wisdom to know the difference. Because if if you try to go to an established committee that has a way of doing things and convince them that they're doing it wrong. They need to change. They need to move faster. They need to give you permission. They need you to to give you money and they need to let you be in charge instead of them being in charge. That's like any one of those things is impossible. Okay. But to do all of them. Right. 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 That's that's just lunacy. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I have found 
Um, I got to be really careful because I'm, I'm always afraid that people are going to think that I'm subversive. <laughs> but but here's, the thing, but here's the thing. I have become, I there's various things that I use and it depends on the situation. It depends on my position in the church. If I'm just volunteering at, 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 a, at a church where someone else is in charge, I wouldn't use one tactic. But if I'm the minister that's new versus the minister that's been there for a few years, you know, mm-hmm, there's different mm-hmm. there's different possibilities. But the first thing I do is I ask, do I need to ask permission? Okay. A lot of people mm-hmm. think that they need to ask permission. And I know this because as a minister, I've had people come to me and say, hi, you know, um, we have our special thing that we do every single year. And I was thinking of changing the, the banner from red to uh, pink. And I wanted to ask your permission and see if that's okay with you. What, ask what, what, what committee we need to go through to get that approved. And I'll just look at them and think, why are you asking my permission? Yeah. You know, if you need to use church space that you're not already using, like if you need to rent a room, you know, or kick the kick the youth group out of their room for a couple of weeks so that you can put together a homeless shelter, then we need to talk about permission and, and negotiation. If you need a budget line item for $10,000 that isn't already there, you're going to need to ask permission. you got to convince people to do that. Um, but if you want to just go up to a newcomer and say, hi, good morning, you know, how's it going? You know, when, when people come to visit for the first time, we like to give them a call, um, see if they have time for a cup of coffee so I can get to know them better and ask, answer any questions they may have. And then, you know, can I get your phone number? You don't have to ask anybody's permission to do that. And if you don't have to ask permission to do it once, you don't have to ask permission to do it 50 times. Yeah. And in my experience with every single ministry I've ever started, it always started with me and, and like one other person and just started doing it. And when it got big enough mm-hmm. that we needed permission, by that point, we'd already gotten enough momentum. We'd gotten enough enthusiasm yeah. that it was already, the you know, people were coming to me and saying, how can we help you? The committee wants to talk to you because we're thinking we'd like to fund this. We're so excited about it. Would you write an article? Um, you know, would, mm-hmm. would you come show us what you're doing? As opposed to me going in cold and trying to explain to them what it would look like. Um, the other thing that I do, well, there's, there's lots of things I do. If I, if, if they're not sure... Um, I will often say, well, let's try it for 90 days. Let's, it'll take us six months to really get this going. And if it's six months, yeah, yeah, okay, um, yeah. it's completely fallen apart, well, then I will apologize and we won't do it anymore. But if it brings in new people, the budget goes up, and more kids start coming to our Sunday school, then we'll know that it worked and you haven't lost anything. And that's where it gets down to most of my um, methods that I have tested and that I have tried out and that I have found to be the most effective. There's lots of effective methods. There's thousands of methods. There's many effective methods. And then there are the ones that are the most effective. And in my experience, based on my research and my data, Mm -hmm. those don't cost any money, which makes it a Hmm. whole lot easier to convince a committee to go along with it. Yeah. You know, if you're trying to convince them to take, you know, when, when money is tight and they're really worried about the budget and they've been declining, try and convince them to invest hard earned money into something that they don't know will work, they will always see it as as a, they'll start to evaluate it in the terms of cost effectiveness. But if you say, this is going to cost nothing, I'm willing to do all the work, I just need one other person to help me do X, Y, and Z, this is what I'm anticipating the benefits are, it's a lot easier for them to say, we have nothing to lose, everything to gain, and I don't have to do anything. If she's willing to do all the work, then I don't care, right? Yeah, that makes it a yeah. lot easier. Um, I remember at one point I was helping um, a church apply for a grant. There were all these church vitality grants, and uh, I had been working with them and talking with them and discussing well different strategies they could do and different you know plans and sort of because they were trying to make a three year plan because then you write it into the grant and you get it funded. And so we were mm-hmm. talking about all these different things. This is everything that I would teach in my book or on my website or you know in my workshops. I was just telling it to them and saying, let's put this in the grant. And, you know, and at one point the grant, it became clear that it was, it was not a good option for them anymore. Um, Mm. Trying to apply for, there's a whole bunch of reasons why, which I won't go into, but I was just saying, you know, I don't think this is your best option. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that you would be wasting your money having me try to help you get this grant. Even if you got it, it wouldn't be um, cost effective because there were so many 
um, writers on that grant that they had to promise to do that were going to cost money. In the end, it was going to be a, a, a wash. Okay. And then they would be under all these restrictions to do everything they'd said they were going to do. And they, they wouldn't have any money to really do it. And, and I remember hearing the, <laughs> talking to the minister on the other end of the phone, I'm saying, I'm so sorry, we've already invested three months into this process. And now I don't think it would be cost effective for you to go forward. And he said, well, honestly, all the things you've been asking us to do, we've already started doing before we even applied for the grant because they were already easy to implement and they didn't cost any money. Nothing you've recommended mm-hmm. thus far actually has a price tag attached. We've already been doing it and they're already working. <laughs> he said, so forget the grant. Would you just come teach us more? Um, and and it was that easy. They were like, oh, $20,000. We don't even need it because we're already being wow. successful without it. And wow. it took me a long time to realize that. But to make that point from the beginning, to try and convince a committee to try and get something going, to know in advance that nothing you will do will actually hurt the church. There's nothing you can do that can hurt the church. Okay, you're you're not going to, none of my, even if you do them poorly, they're not going to make a net loss financially or in people. But the net gain that you could get as a result is so exponentially large it becomes a lot easier to convince people to be willing to take that first step, even if it's just them. And it's a lot easier to convince a committee to go forward if you do need their permission, if you do need their buy-in. And buy-in is, there's a difference between permission and buy-in. If you want people to be mm-hmm. behind you mm-hmm. and excited for you and not trying to sabotage you um, while you're going, buy-in is important, but that's very different from permission. And I've learned to yeah. say, I'm coming to you mm-hmm. because I want to let you know what, what I'm doing, what we are working on, not what I would like to do if with your permission. And I'm asking for your blessing. That's very different from saying, here's, I've got all my ducks in a row and I'm asking for your permission so that I can get funded. Yeah. To say, we're working on this. We've noticed we're already getting fruits. This is what we can envision it looking like in six months. And I need your blessing because you're going to be seeing more announcements coming out and I don't want you to be surprised. That's great. I love the distinction there between buying and permission. Yeah, because if you ask permission, they are automatically keyed to say no. And then later when things are going well, you can say, you know, I'm coming to you because we need more money. But that's usually after people have already started donating. And that is is the final thing that I'll I'll, I'll say on on this particular point. When we talk about, you know, ministries are are self-generating, that is my litmus test for a viable ministry. When I feel that nudge, when I feel that that push to do something, when I start, you know, like with that with the with the kids, um, I remember with the school supplies drive, getting up and asking people, "Would you please donate pencils? We're going to need." We did the math. We need, you know, 122 uh, backpacks and and binders. Actually, we didn't give out backpacks the first year. We just gave the stuff to put in the backpacks. But so many binders, mm-hmm. so many pencils, whatever. We calculated all the lists, and so people were going shopping for it. But I knew that it really had legs when someone I didn't know, this is, this is the test, right? Someone that I don't already know comes up to me unsolicited and hands me money for the ministry. Mm. Because I mm-hmm. never once got up and said, would you please donate money? I said, we need yeah. pencils, we need yeah. glue, we need, we need you know, safety scissors or whatever. But someone I had never met before walked up to me after worship someday, I'd never even seen this person's face and said, Hey, here, and he put a hundred bucks in cash in my hand here, here, here's some money. I want you to put it towards us kids. You're doing such a great job. I want you to use this. I'm not going shopping or whatever, but here, here's some money. And I want you to use it for those kids. And I went, wow. So then by the time I did go to the committee, like two years later and said, we need X number of dollars for backpacks. I was able to say, you know, we've already raised $1,200. We need 800 more. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, then they say, oh, we're not trying to do this. It's not just us investing. It's a partnership and other people are helping. Um, and it's a lot easier for people to say yes to donating, whatever it is, when you can yep. say other people have already donated. We're just asking you to fill yep. the gap so that we can get to the goal. Rather than saying we're trying to make, we're trying to raise $20,000. Lauren, do you have $20,000? If I said <laughs> we've already got, you know, $12,000 with promises from other people and we still have six more months. But I, I'm trying to figure out where that last 40 bucks is going to come from. Lauren, do you think you could, do you have any friends that might be interested in, in helping? Could you come up with 40 bucks? People go, oh, well, yeah, actually, when you think about it, I could, I could, I could probably come up with 40 bucks if I did this, this, and this, and they'll find money. Um, and so that, that makes a big difference as well when trying to convince um, or change that church culture. It, and it, 
you know, there's biblical precedence for this. Jesus just always started with what do you have, right? The great prophets started like yeah. Elisha with the widow's yep. oil. Well, what do you already have? Not, well, we're yeah. going to have to find 50,000 bucks someplace to save your kid. What do you already have? I have, I have one pot of oil. That's it. One. Okay. Well, if we ask everybody to pitch Five in. Five and two fish. Right. Then it, it'll, if we just are willing to share, it'll work itself out. And that's, that's generally how it goes. So there's a biblical precedent, but from a psychological standpoint, I think if people can, Stop seeing it as we have everything to lose, which a lot of churches think they have everything to lose. They've been hanging on by a thread for so long. Everything to lose, nothing to gain, and we've got to invest money that we could really use for other things. The answer is going to be automatically no if you're asking our permission. But if you're asking their blessing to do something where they have everything to gain, nothing to lose, they don't have to do very much work. Um, And the person will say, you know, there's a time limit. It's finite. You don't have to commit for your whole Mm -hmm. life. And I'm willing to come back and say, I'm sorry if it doesn't work. Yeah. You know, it's a lot easier for people to say, well, actually, yeah. And I'd like to help. And once that momentum gets going, I swear, and and everybody knows, everybody's had this experience, but I've seen it so many times where the same people that said, I'm out, I have, I have, I'm no interest in this whatsoever. I've, we've never done it this way. I won't give you my support. Please don't. Six months later, they're the ones first in line saying, how can I help you? I was the one, I, I was supporting her from the beginning. This was my idea. We were totally excited about this. Yes. I remember when she came to our committee and we were so excited. We weren't sure, but she's really taken this. So we're glad we supported her, you know, <laughs> yeah. and they'll, they'll be what, and, and you want that. That's not something to resent. That's something that you want. You want their buy-in, yeah. you want their enthusiasm because they will be the ones that are telling other friends about this great new ministry that they helped launch. And then more people will come. You don't want to say, excuse me, that was my idea. Who do you think? Let them, let them, let them get yeah, on board. It's let buy-in. them, right? It's, buy-in. it's it's absolutely buy-in. And you look at the the disciples, and you look at the original apostles. You know, look at Moses. He said no like six times before he finally said yes, and he ended up being the greatest prophet of all time. So having some initial skepticism, you know, you're in good company. Jonah, he jumped in the belly of a whale and later and came back. He was the most effective prophet ever because he converted an entire nation with five words, you know, after he tried to run away from it. So let them, let them. Well, we haven't talked hardly at all or about the book. I think we've talked around the well, book. The book is, the book is really short. People can read it in an afternoon. What else do you want to talk about though? Yeah. <laughs> I want to hear since we're, I'm, I'm running out of time. I need to get the kids lunch here. Um, but let's do this. If you can give me two or three things that churches should stop doing or not do and maybe three, two to three things they should be doing or should start doing. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I would say stop, stop worrying. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but stop worrying mm-hmm. that you're going to offend someone. Stop worrying uh, that the money is, is a big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, stop, stop looking at all the other churches and saying, you know, how come they're doing so much better than we are? Yeah. Right. When you compare your insides to their outside, anybody else's outsides, you're automatically going to lose. And, and, and those are like specifics, but the real thing is just remind yourself of who's in charge. You know, mm-hmm. with God, all things are possible. So get with God. Um, and then the things things to do, um, I mean, I lay them out very, very clearly in the book, but I, I truly believe that it's not about money. It's not about popularity. It's about a basic skill set that if, if churches have these five skills, then they can do ministry anywhere. They can do it in their big expensive building or they can do it at the local bar or they can do it at the local park. Five basic skills. If they don't have these skills, ministry will fail wherever you are. The biggest, most uh, mm. amazing, evangelical, mega, huge budget church will still be, you know, 30 people, all with gray hair, backbiting each other, okay, without these skills, no matter where you are. So the basic skills are, are you retaining your first-time visitors? Mm-hmm. You can do that effectively. You can do it very, very poorly. Doesn't matter where you are. If you're getting first-time visitors and they're coming and they're leaving again, you're doing something wrong. Learn the new skill. 
And then no matter where you are, if the visitors are coming to you at the local pub, if they're coming to you at the local park, if they're coming to you at the local dog park, if they're coming to you at your Bible study at someone's house, if you can retain them, your ministry will thrive. So skill one, skill two. So for me, I would say learn the five skills. Retain your first-time visitors. Learn how to invite people and teach your congregation how to invite people, which is what my second book is about. That one's the one that's coming out in January. Um, Disciple your youth. Don't try to attract kids. Disciple your youth because they're going to be taking over your church. Mm -hmm. Teach them how to lead. Let them lead. Give them plenty of room to practice and fail. Because by their time they're in their late teens, you want them in charge of something. Okay? So youth... Learn how to ask for money in effective ways. And five, get out of your own way. And that is a skill. That is not an attitude. That is a skill. <laughs> and it starts with saying, God, this is your big stupid church. You're aggravating, backbiting, impoverished, old, tired, burnt out, you know, words that cannot be repeated here, church, right? Mm-hmm. You fix it. You grow it, you heal it, you turn it into vital force in the community that's doing good. And if there's something you want me to do, you let me know and make it really, really clear so that I don't miss it and then get out of the way. Um, And that is, I think, the hardest thing for people to do. They're so busy trying to worry and fix the problem that they can't get out of the way and let the problem, let God do their own work. I met one woman in Hawaii. I actually interviewed her. She was so interesting. I saw her sitting. She was older, probably in her... 80s maybe this this hawaiian lady she was at a church that that worshiped in a in a mobile home right which was great because they didn't have a big overhead cost but the 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 view was spectacular so Mm -hmm. she's sitting there during the coffee hour up and she i saw her she's clasping her hand she's up all the way up against the railing on their little porch you know and she's going no, 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 just fine. I'll just sit here. I'll just sit here. I'll just, I'll just, no, they're fine. They're fine. And I said, hi, you look like you're a little stressed out. She goes, yep. She goes, I used to be in charge of coffee hour and these new folks are doing it hmm. kind of funny. And she said, but I have to let them do it because they're going to be in charge. And however they do it, as long as they're doing it, yeah. it's going to work out. And I have to remind yeah. myself of that. And she had been one of the founding members of the church and they had had a big blessing commissioning, um, party for her, right? A ritual Mm -hmm. um, ceremony Mm -hmm. to decommission her so that she could step back and let new people do it. And she, she was doing the same thing that, that we should be doing. God, you're in charge, not me. God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change that I think the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference, let them do it. And she's like, you know what? I have to remind myself, literally, she was praying to herself. She was agitated, but she was praying to herself, sitting there going, let them do it. Let them do it. Don't help. Don't help. You've shown mm. them what you want them to do. Now they've got to make it their own. Because if this church is going to survive, she told me, if this church is going to thrive past my generation, they have to make it their own. And if I keep jumping in the middle, they will never be able to do that. They'll get frustrated and they'll leave. And that's one thing yeah. she learned for whatever reason as a founding member. She learned that and she practiced it. And she was 80 years old. She's been doing it for 80 years. Wow. And it was still hard for wow. her. But that's where the faith comes in, right? Where we stop relying on our own knowledge and we let God take care of it. And I said, how can I take everything you just said and teach it to other people? Because it's true. I'm not going to say it's going to be easy. I'm not going to say it's going to be fun to sit there and watch the youth fumble through their first sermon or light those candles and you think that they're going to catch the rug on fire or to let (laughs) newcomers come in and help, you know, uh, sing in the choir and they want to sing new weird songs that you don't think are going to work. But to sit back and go, mm-hmm. this isn't my church. This is God's church. And if I'm going to let yeah. this church survive into the next generation, and we've already lost two generations, so we're not messing around at this point. Yeah. And I have to yeah. I have to bite my tongue, fold my hands, and smile and do what I do with the youth. Yes, that sounds like a great idea. How can I support you? Yes. Who else do you think you would like to work with that can help you with this because it sounds like a lot of work? Yes, yes, yes. And go home and you can still be vexed. You can still gnash your teeth and weep and wail and drink your coffee and gripe to your friends privately in your own way. Get You know, have it out with God in your own time. But let the new people go. And that is the fifth skill. And I think that's the hardest one. I, I give a prayer that's helped me 
Um, Mm-hmm. But the most important part of the prayer is not necessarily the turning it over to God. That's critical, but that's not the most critical. The most critical is that I spend 24 to 48 hours not doing anything, not saying anything, mm-hmm. and not trying mm-hmm. to micromanage. And, yeah. and that oh. that reinforces. So so anyway, that, those were the five skills. Retain your newcomers. Invite people. Learn how to invite people and get your congregation to do it. Disciple your youth. Learn how to ask for the resources you need and the money that you need. And get out of the way. Let it go. And if you can do those five things, your church will thrive. Even if you have to sell your building, I know we're attached to our buildings, your your ministry will still thrive wherever you land because that's all necessary. And all of those things, you only need one person to do that. You only need two people to do that. And that's where we get right back Mm -hmm. to the biblical precedent, right? Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, I will be there with you. This is great. We're we're over time, so I want to I want to end it there for or well this part of the conversation. Uh, we got a closing question still, uh, but tell our listeners where they can uh, connect with you more to to get better trained on these five skills, and then uh, perhaps get a copy of your book. Okay. Uh, well, here, here this is the book uh, "Grow Your Church" uh, by Reverend Tracy Barnow. You can find it on Amazon in paperback or uh, Kindle, and I believe if you buy the paperback, you get a free Kindle version, which makes it mm-hmm. easier. Um, you can also go to my website because I have a lot of articles and information on my website. Um, I would say there it's a blog, but it's not really a blog. It's a, a series of articles of step-by-step breaking down these methods, how to do them, how they don't cost anything, um, how you can, all the things that I have failed. I try to make that clear all the ways that I've messed them up so that you don't make those same mistakes. You can find that mm-hmm. all on howtogrowmychurch.com. Go to the part that says blog and you will see all the, all the articles that, that list exactly that. And there's one article that it talks about um, how to stop dreading the future and let the, let the church, let, let the future church emerge today. That one breaks down the five skills and links you to all of the different um, articles for each skill. So that would be a good place to start. Um, you can also reach me anytime at Pastor Tracy at howtogrowmychurch.com. Uh, and I'm on Facebook now, um, How to Grow My Church. It's, it's the same one. There's a Facebook page, How to Grow My Church, where I've been putting out memes and links to my articles that I try to write just about every week. And I don't make it every week. Hi, I see we have a new person that's joined us today. Hello. For our listeners, uh, Jackson is my son is with us here. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back yeah. with some closing questions. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. All right, we're back with Pastor Tracy and Jackson. So you'll hear him in the background. But uh, Pastor Tracy, if you're, uh, you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, but if you're Pope for a day, what would you like to do with yourself then? If I were Pope for a day. You know, the Pope did one thing that really impressed me a couple of years ago when he found out that one of his cardinals who had been uh, instrumental in the child abuse fiascos uh, and had been living in a mansion, you know, like a gold-plated mansion, he removed him and put him in jail and then turned the mansion into a homeless shelter. Wow. And if I were Pope for a day, (laughs) that is exactly what I would do. I would start, you know, all the people that had been um, exploiting or victimizing or uh, harming in any way. I would convert all of their property into helping the most vulnerable, protecting them and sheltering them. I thought that was a pretty classy move on his part. And that is exactly what I would, I would do if I, if I could. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, how about a theologian or historical Christian oh, figure to meet or bring back to life? Oh, well, I would say I like six uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola. I would really love to meet him and talk to him. I haven't, I don't have time to go on a 40 day retreat, which is what he recommends. But if he were alive, I probably, I would, I would make that, would make that time. And you know, the other person that I 
absolutely adore is Rabia of Basra. She was a Muslim saint and poet who um, was actually born and lived about 500 years before Rumi. But his poetry, which everybody knows and loves, was actually based on her poetry. And he made her a Sufi saint, even though Mm. Sufism hadn't been invented when she was alive. But that woman is such an embodiment of God's grace that out of the most terrible, chaotic, nasty circumstances, God can take all that and turn it into something elegant and beautiful. Um, I would love to just sit in a room with her and listen to her talk. That's good. Good. Um, What do you think history will remember from our current time and place? I think that it will become apparent that America has been doing Christianity a little weird for the past hundred years or so. Americans don't realize that, um, that they are very out of alignment and out of step with um, historical Christianity and worldwide Christianity. You know, the American way of doing megachurches and such is very strange. Um, I think that we will be judged, um, as we all are, um, on how we treated the most vulnerable, um, the most poor, the most hungry, the most uneducated. Um, As much as we like to fight with one another over you know, who believes in science and who's, you know, doesn't believe in science. There's been a real push to downgrade education in this country for many years so that people can be manipulated and pushed and pulled. Um, So to then blame the people that were actively targeted for decades, I don't think it helps anyone. I mean, we're in a pickle now, but later, you know, we will look back and say, oh, look at how Look at how a government or corporations or entities deliberately rendered a population ignorant so that they could exploit them. I mean, we see this happening, you know, the Taliban does this, right? All of a sudden, women aren't allowed to be educated, and all of a sudden, the women are exploited. Nobody is ignorant of that connection. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, it starts to bear fruit after a few generations, and we're seeing the fruits of that now. Um, And I think that we're going to be judged on that and we're going to hopefully learn more powerful lessons about the importance of education, quality education, public education, um, civic education, um, free education. And uh, hopefully that will help right, I think, the imbalances that we've been seeing in religion as well. And I, I think what we're going to see in a few hundred years is a rebirth of Christianity. I think it's going to be really, really messy as birth often is, but I think we're going to see a real rebirth in um, a more classical traditional form of Christianity with small churches, a lot of sort of freedom fighter types, um, sort of subversive Bible studies uh, that get back to the heart of the scripture uh, and, and that's going to be really necessary because people will need a sanctuary. We're, we're at a point in society where people need a sanctuary. People need houses of faith. People need gospel to counteract what they are experiencing in real time in society. And so I think a lot of traditional churches are going to fall and a lot of new little tiny ones are going to be birthed. And that's why I keep getting back to those five skill sets, because I think a lot of pastors that are experiencing disillusionment with the church could very easily go into starting their own smaller churches, um, but they need the skill set that they were not taught and they have not learned and they haven't had a chance to practice. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you hope? I guess that's kind of what you hope for the future. You said it right there. And uh, since I got a lot going on here, um, <laughs> forgive me for cutting us off. No, that's totally fine. I'd love to talk to you again anytime. Yeah, give your website again. Oh, uh, howtogrowmychurch.com. And you can also find me, my page on Facebook, How to Grow My Church, um, and the book, Grow Your Church. And my new book is coming out in January. It's going to be called Unstoppable Outreach. That's the second skill set, right? This is what to do once people come in your doors, retain your first-time visitors. And the next one is um, how to invite and how to teach your congregation to invite people effectively without spending, you know, a huge amount of money on a marketing plan. Um, 
So that's how you can find how? me. So when this airs, this this will probably come out after your book is released. So go look for her book, Pastor Tracy Barno's book, uh, both books. Highly recommend them. Uh, thanks again for your time. Thanks for your patience with the. Uh, oh, Jackson was a delight. He was the highlight of the interview. <laughs> Good. Uh, every leave folks with a word of peace and may God's peace be with you. Oh, may God bless you as well and your entire family. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Thank you.